about this. Our brains change. Memory is an amazing. What you think is in our there brains is aren't really finished. They're not fully cooked yet. You go with your heart. You we don't have any mind. idea why because we're, we're doing so smart. The things that we're doing. But here's the deal. Statistics, they sound like they're so official and dispassionate. There are all kinds of ways to work numbers when even unconsciously incentivized to come up with a certain result. I'm Bob Duke. I'm Art Markman. I'm Jack Anderson in for Rebecca McEnroy, and this is Two Guys on Your Head. Today, the replication crisis. Prominent research findings that have been published have failed to hold up when other scientists have tried to do the same studies. When one group of scientists repeats the methodology of a prior study, that's called a replication. And if the same pattern of findings is observed in subsequent studies, then that's called a successful replication of that study. And what we've been finding is that a number of findings that have been out there in the research literature have failed to replicate. So people have gone through and done similar or identical studies and have actually not observed the same pattern of results, which then leads people to wonder, what should I believe? Yeah. And this has been called the replication crisis. The reason this has been labeled a crisis, which is a pretty dramatic word, this isn't just like a couple of studies. This is a large percentage of very prominently cited studies. The roots of a replication crisis are built into the way that scientific publishing typically happens. So at least in the past, the way you got a paper published was you did often several studies around a particular topic, if you obtained a similar pattern of results across several studies, and that pattern of results involved reliably finding a difference among some set of experimental conditions, you had what you could think of as a positive result. There was a difference between these conditions, and that was an important prerequisite for publication. And then a second prerequisite was, is anybody going to care about this result? You could run an experiment in which there are two or three different conditions, two or three different experimental manipulations you did, and you found no difference at all statistically between those conditions. That's what's called a null result. You did a bunch of stuff and it didn't seem to affect the measure that you had. And historically, it's been very difficult to publish null results because there's all sorts of reasons why an experiment wouldn't work, but presumably a smaller number of reasons why it would. If one group gets a particular result that statistically shows a difference between a set of conditions, that gives it the prospect of being published. If a whole bunch of other groups then come along and get these null results, meaning they don't get the effect, it's harder for them to get it published because there is a bias in the publication process against these null results. So you're more likely to get a paper into the literature if you have a finding than if you have the absence of a finding. Yeah. And often that's well known enough that when people run a bunch of studies and fail to get the effect, they simply don't even try to publish them. And this is something that's actually become known as the file drawer problem. Yeah. The idea is the results just get stuck in a file drawer somewhere instead of being sent out into the literature. Yeah. It's not easy to get things published, especially in top tier journals. There are pressures on especially young faculty and young researchers who want to establish themselves in the field that they need to publish things. And those results 
are believed to be most interesting when you find some significant, and by significant, we mean it's unlikely to have happened by chance alone, and also significant in the popular parlance that it's important, that it's something that's actually meaningful. There's nothing nefarious in that. I mean, that's something that's an understandable way of doing this, because if you think about all the things we could test that didn't show an effect, it would be certainly infeasible, if not terribly boring, to read all these things that don't have any effect on anything, right? right? There is an attractiveness, especially to effects that are surprising. That's attention getting in many ways. And if you look at the numbers of citations about how many times a paper has been cited in the literature, things that are showing something that would not have been expected or was in some way unusual, that understandably attracts the attention of other scholars in the field. There was a journal that started in the early 1990s called Psychological Science. Psychological Science had two notable changes from other journals. The first was that it wanted phenomena that would make you go, wow. And the second was that it published very short papers. So papers that were just a couple of thousand words long, as opposed to four or five different experiments that were being presented. Now you had room to present one or perhaps two studies. The fact is that if you only need to get an effect once or twice, you might be able to do that through a combination of chance and some of these p-hacking techniques in a way that it would be really hard to get it four or five times in a row yeah. and convince yourself that it's real if you need that many studies to get the paper published. There was this trend to publish shorter papers and to publish more of them, which then increased the pressure on people to publish more papers. Now, even if you're only going to run a small number of studies, you have stated in advance, this is the way I'm going to do it. And so you have removed all of this freedom that you had before. So then the question becomes, what does that mean to you, the casual consumer of the psychology literature? If you hear something that sounds too good to be true, it probably is. If you want to really feel confident that there's a result that's out there that ought to make you change your life, don't bet on it until it's been out there for about 15 years and the field still believes it. Yeah. So don't change your life on the basis of a new finding. Give it some time to percolate because that's the way science works. And, and I would say that while we have sensationalized this to some degree as a field by calling it the replication crisis, and I think it's important to give it the attention that it deserves. Yeah. I also think that we have to recognize that this has always been the way science works, that we run studies and if a phenomenon is interesting enough, other people try to replicate and extend it. And if they fail to do it, the phenomenon just drops out of sight because it isn't something that people are able to extend in an important way. It is a crisis in the short term, but in the long term, it is the way science works. And there still is an accumulated body of knowledge that illuminates the way that human minds work in ways that I think do have an important impact on how people ought to think about the way they live their lives. Amen, brother. Next time, we'll talk about dislodging prior information with Dr. Art Markman and Dr. Bob Duke. You can listen back to this show or any of our archive shows at KUT.org and subscribe to the podcast and never miss an episode in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Our engineers are David Alvarez, Jake Perlman, and Michael Crawford. I'm Jack Anderson in for Rebecca McEnroy, and I co-produce Two Guys on Your Head at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas.